Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Trenaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Let's dig into inflation and join Roger as he speaks on how he evaluates risk and exposure today. Several questions were recently posed by both our podcast audience as well as class members of our free course. We now plan to offer the free course each quarter and more on the course later, but these are the questions that are the subjects of today's podcast. In earlier podcasts, I stated that inflation is reportedly artificially low due to hedonic methods used by government departments as well as government motivations to keep Social Security payment adjustments low to prolong the life of the Social Security program. Are there alternative methods to get at real inflation levels, and if so, what are they? A second question, what are we to make of the U.S. stock market hitting new highs and interest rates remaining at historical lows while the Federal Reserve creates trillions of dollars of new money and the U.S. government borrows trillions of dollars of new debt? And the final question, what are the major risks in the stock and bond markets and what are you, meaning me, what am I doing to mitigate them for yourself or myself? These questions are important ones, and my answers may be a bit detailed as the subject matter is really complex. Nevertheless, we are navigating uncharted waters that impact our lifestyles, our investments, our retirement planning, and overall assumption of risk. So here goes. Some of you may recall the Consumer Price Index and inflation measurement discussions in our initial podcasts when we began making these podcasts about a year ago. We highlighted that the government's official price tracking indices are significantly adjusted before they're released to the public. These cumulative adjustments have the effect of substantially lowering reported price increases in the marketplace and, in my view and the view of others who track these indices, intentionally underreports overall inflation year after year. For example, shortly after President Clinton entered the White House, the Bureau of Labor Statistics altered the calculation of inflation by changing the weighting of goods in the CPI fixed basket. Then, over subsequent years, the method of weighting the underlying components was changed from a straight arithmetic weighting to a geometric weighting. The primary result of this switch to the geometric weighting was a lower weighting to CPI components that were rising in price and a higher weighting to those items dropping in price, which led to lower reported inflation. Additionally, during the uh, Clinton administration, as housing prices were at that time increasing substantially, housing prices were removed from the index and replaced by a quasi-rent calculation, which dampened increases in housing prices. In any event, the net effect has been to reduce reported CPI on an annual or a year-over-year basis by 2.7% from what it would have been based on the traditional weighting methodology. So in other words, if CPI of 2% is reported on the geometric weighting basis, uh, that would be equivalent to actually 4.7% on the traditional basis, the arithmetic average. The results year after year have been dramatic. 
And the compounding effect since the early 1990s, when these key changes were made, has reduced annual cost of living adjustments in Social Security by more than a third. Keep in mind that retirees, if they receive an increase in their Social Security at all, receive it based upon the government official calculation of the CPI. It's not exactly the CPI, it's actually lower, which is the CPI itself is actually lower than the actual. And that has been to promote the lifespan of the Social Security program, which at the present time, today, more money is being taken out of Social Security than comes into Social Security. So the depletion, regardless of these manipulations, is moving along with the expectation that Social Security may have its fund depleted in the next 10 to 15 years. If the higher cost of living indices were used over the past 20 or 30 years, I suspect the Social Security fund would have been depleted by now. But the manipulation of data doesn't stop there. Aside from weighting changes, the Bureau of Labor Statistics instituted a system of hedonic H-E-D-O-N-I-C, hedonic adjustments. Hedonics adjusts the prices of goods for the increased pleasure that the Washington analysts think that the consumer derives from the goods. An example, that new washing machine you bought did not cost you 20% more than it would have cost you because you got an offsetting 20% increase in the pleasure you derive from pushing its new electronic control buttons instead of turning that old noisy dial, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Another example, when gasoline rises 10 cents a gallon because of a federally mandated gasoline additive, the increased gasoline price does not contribute to inflation. Instead, the 10 cents is eliminated from the consumer price index because of the offsetting hedonic thrills the consumer gets from breathing cleaner air. The same principle applies to federally mandated safety features in automobiles. I've not attempted to quantify the effects of questionable quality adjustments to the CPI, but they are known to be substantial. In addition to hedonics, there is, quote, intervention analysis, unquote, in the seasonal adjustment process. Intervention analysis is critical to the highly volatile areas of food and energy. When a commodity like gasoline goes through periods of violent price swings, the Bureau of Labor Statistics steps in and uses intervention analysis to smooth out the volatility. As a result, sharply higher gasoline prices are never fully reflected in the reported headline inflation number. However, declining prices, which are never adjusted, do show fully an impact to reducing inflation. Over the past 30 years, the CPI, based on continuous adjustments, is a poor and actually a misleading indicator of inflation. In my view, with the help of third-party research, I'll share with you a reported CPI of 2% or so, which has been shown for years, actually understates inflation by a factor of two or three times or more. Professional private sector economic firms estimate actual inflation has been running at 6% plus per year for many years. So if you think your dollar earned doesn't buy as much as it did five or so years ago, you get my point. Everyone faces unique inflation impacts based on your own consumption, my own consumption. For example, a family with two children in a rental apartment 
is impacted in a different way than an empty nest family of two who owns their own home. Even so, the older families are impacted negatively as their Social Security checks are only increased a small amount relative to inflation each year, if they're increased at all. And the index they use, as we just mentioned, understates inflation in any event. So they get a double whammy. And it's no wonder that retirees find it harder and harder to make ends meet. So we're really all affected. And the next question you may ask is, okay, what is a more reliable or a more realistic indicator of inflation? I'm here to help you, so I'll give you two references. The first reference I'll share is the Chapwood Index. That's one word, C-H-A-P-W-O-O-D. You can find the Chapwood Report, and everything I'm going to give you is free. I have no financial interest otherwise. I want to make it no cost on everything I do for you, if I can do that. The Chapwood Index reflects the true cost of living increase in America. I have to clarify what I mean by that. It's updated and released twice a year. It reports the unadjusted actual cost and price changes of the top 500 items on which Americans spend their after-tax dollars, and this index is also tracked individually for the 50 largest cities in the United States. If you go to www.chapwoodindex, that's one word, C-H-A-P-W-O-O-D-I-N-D-E-X.com, you'll see the work that the Chapwood Report and the Chapwood Index has. This index tracks inflation by major city. And for example, in Los Angeles, if you go to the website, you'll see that the index for the past three or so years has estimates of inflation at 11% or more every year for the past three years. Sounds really high, doesn't it? And it may be too high, probably is too high, because Chapwood is tracking price changes in 500 items. They're doing it consistently year after year, but you likely don't buy all 500 items. So I'll give you another resource which attempts to track a consistent market basket of items for a typical American family. And this index is produced, and it has been for, I think, close to 30 years. The index is Shadow Statistics or Shadow Stats. And if you go to their website, which I'll give you in a second, it's free again. You can see that the official CPI since in the more recent 20 years, so since about 2000, has fluctuated in a range between 2 and 4% with a couple of years that are outside that range. Recently, it's been in the 1% to 2% range, closer to 2 Meanwhile, the consistent market basket that was based in 1990 for a typical American family has been tracked by Shadow Statistics, the name of the firm. Actually, it's Shadow Government Statistics. In a free area, you can access that inflation has been actually fluctuating in the 4 to 6% area for most of these years. And in the past five years or so, it's been close to 6%. So if you just go to, uh, and this is the website, www.shadowstats, that's one word, S-H-A-D-O-W-S-T-A-T-S dot com, you can take advantage of their free material. They have a subscription service, but I'm not promoting that. I just would want you to check out the tab that you'll see uh, free, 
it says alternate data. And then if you click on that, you'll see a tab that says inflation, and you'll find the inflation graphs that they calculate, and they've been doing it for at least three decades, versus the official government-reported CPI. As I mentioned, over the past 20 years or so, the official CPI has been reported close to 2% a year, uh, while the shadow stats calculation has been reporting more in the 5 to 6% a year. And think about it this way. If you started with a $100 item in the year 2000, it would have increased to $148 in 20 years. That's about 2% a year. And that is tracking the official year-to-year -year change in the consumer price index. So a $100 item goes to $148 in 20 years. But if the actual increase was 5% instead of 2%, the $100 item increases to $265. So if the actual inflation rate is 5% a year, Social Security recipients get, actually they get less than the 2%, but uh, that's another subject. But let's say the Social Security recipients would get about 2%. And meanwhile, the prices of what they're buying are going up at 5%. And that effectively over 20 years causes a loss in purchasing power of, well, not quite. It doesn't quite drop it in half, but it's pretty close. So those who are in fixed incomes, who get basically the same amount of money each month, believe me, they've been noticing it's, it's covered sometimes uh, in various news services about how it's getting harder and harder to live on fixed income. That's particularly true when bond yields are close to 0% or 1% or 2%. And with inflation growing at 5% or so a year over a period of 20 years, this impacts everyone. So if you've noticed that food prices, movie prices, healthcare costs, and many other items that you see go up much more than 1% or 2% a year, then you share this sinking feeling. So far, all of what we've been talking about relates to the second question. What are we to make of the U.S. stock market hitting new highs and interest rates remaining at historical lows while the Federal Reserve creates trillions of dollars of new money and the U.S. government borrows trillions of dollars of new debt? Let's answer that question as best we can. With a drop of almost one-third in our second quarter gross national product, inflation was hardly the focus. And it's really still not the focus. It's hard to find anyone writing about inflation. And that's usually the place where surprises come from when everybody pretty much ignores the areas. Unemployment was, as you know, and still is the focus. With the Fed and Congress adding together almost $6 trillion in combined new money creation and new debt and counting, prices have likely been stabilized at low inflation levels temporarily. And this is particularly true as Americans since March have been saving much more and taking, obviously, savings out of spending. So spending has gone down. The bond and stock markets reflect the continuing expectation of reported low inflation and the high market liquidity. It's important to recall throughout economic history that high savings takes price pressures away and high liquidity pumps up asset prices, like stock prices. The government and Fed mitigations are now showing some signs of trend changes, and that's what I want to talk about right now. For the past month or so, the Federal Reserve has added little to the total of their bond support and lending programs. So either the market has 
reacted to their satisfaction, or record-high bankruptcies were not successfully mitigated, and we are seeing record-high bankruptcies, substantially on an uptrend. Additionally, Congress has been slow to add to their debt-generating support programs. Of course, a lot can change toward the end of the year, post-election, and assessed additional needs that surface week to week, particularly in the third quarter. I've always known that I cannot predict events. The best I can do for myself and family is to manage risk. And here are my identified major risks for the bond and stock markets. What are we to make of the U.S. stock market hitting new highs and interest rates remaining at historical lows? To go back to the question. It's important to keep in mind the U.S. stock market is an exception to the global markets, and global markets actually follow U.S. stock markets as well as U.S. bond market trends. The U.S. stock market is larger than all the other major markets combined, and the U.S. bond market is way larger than all the other bond markets combined around the world. Couple this with the fact that the Federal Reserve is the largest elephant in any central bank room, and is key to not only the UK, but also European community bank stability. We've covered this before. It's not by coincidence that the world's financial markets move together, with the possible exception of China, for the time being anyway. So I'm focused on our own markets, but keeping a sharp eye for emerging banking issues, particularly in the UK and the European community, as they are more constrained with the European Central Bank in new money creation. My point is that a major sell-off in the United States will likely precipitate the same kinds of sell-offs on a global basis. So there may be nowhere to hide or nowhere to basically reallocate stock holdings because all markets may be simultaneously impacted in the next downtrend, which will happen. It always does. The challenge of investing late in the cycle, which uh, this is late in the cycle, in my view, is that upside for equity markets is likely smaller than the downside. And we actually saw that in March. As people were expecting 5 to 8% increase in the markets, the markets dropped 30 to 40% in a period of weeks. However, the last five or so bear markets saw the S&P 500 index fall by an average of 43%. And any optimistic assessment would give global equities at most low double-digit upside for the next year or so. So this is asymmetric. In other words, the markets may go up low single digit, they may go down 40%. And this asymmetry adds a degree of caution to me in my risk management. I've gathered investor experience through this cycle many times, or this kind of a, a market cycle many times, including the dot-com bubble, the 08-09 Great Recession, and the initial COVID-related drop earlier this year. Market cycles and volatility arrive after investors have a gut feeling something isn't right, but euphoria nevertheless continues and many investors stay engaged in the markets until abruptly, coming out of nowhere seemingly, and many are not prepared, a rapid trend change downward. In my view, right now, market risks in stocks and bonds are really, really high but I don't know when the abrupt changes will take place. One area that can certainly cause an abrupt change, in my view, is inflation expectations. 
The seeds for higher inflation are already sown. Specifically, we know that housing outside major city centers is booming in sales and price increases. We know that many renter protections have expired and that 20 to 40 percent of renters face eviction due to job losses that are continuing in their areas of work. Importantly, restaurants, hospitality, junior administrative positions, retail sales positions, and initial entry jobs to the workforce. Rents will be increased for residential, which impacts real inflation and the CPI. As we mentioned during the Clinton administration, housing price increases are mitigated by the formulation that is used, but rent flows pretty much directly through. Food costs are increasing, eating out costs are increasing, and food in and out of the house is about 12% of the total CPI. It's actually higher for lower income families. During COVID, driving has been increasing back to pretty much prior levels. And in the energy sector, a large drop-off in U.S. oil production has occurred since the beginning of the year. And that major drop is importantly in shale oil production. A part of that is price. A part of that is the shale wells themselves now are known to have a very limited lifetime versus five to seven years ago when a lot of the drilling expenses were committed. Additionally, the manufacturing supply chains are being revised, lowering China exposures, which is increasing costs. It's a safe bet taxes will be increased in cities and states and possibly federal government levels. We've seen property taxes already having major increases in process in a number of localities. And we'll even face insurance price increases after the COVID claims and litigation work through the system. So there's a lot already dialed in, as they say. So when, not if, the bond market sniffs higher inflation around the corner, the small group of large investors, pension funds, which incidentally have serious funding problems of their own and are going to have to require additional contributions, which will increase inflation, require more money to be taken away from consumption. Mutual funds are large investors, sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies, large family offices, and the like will move money out of long-term bonds but driving up long-term interest rates. When this occurs, I expect it to be really quick, and, and a lot of people will get on board from these large investor groups. They don't want to be the last ones holding the bonds, the long-term bonds. The impact will cause bonds to fall significantly and quickly. We've also covered this topic in prior podcasts, but I, for one, will mitigate this risk ahead of time by not owning any long-term bonds. I'm not giving investment advice. That's my position. Higher interest rates and higher taxes will have a significant downward impact on stock prices also. Given that all the world's major stock markets are behaving consistently with pretty much all the central banks creating money, flooding all the markets, and the bond yields, the national bond yields close to 0%, in some cases below zero. At those rates, the risk is the reversal of these multi-year trends of zero or low interest rates will happen rather quickly. I just don't know when. It's closer rather than is further away, in my view. The U.S. stock market always recovers from crises and moves higher over the long term. But the short term is highly risky, as past crises have resulted in three or four or more major sell-offs or uptrend reversals during the crises and immediately after the recovery periods have started. 
we've only had one major sell-off, and I prefer to lessen my overall risk by having almost no exposure in stocks for the remainder of the year. After the election in December, I'll reassess. That's how I evaluate risk and exposure today on August 21st. Please do join our free course that expands greatly on our podcasts. It begins again in late September, but you can enroll now. It's free. Go to www.uclaextension.edu. Scroll down the homepage to No Cost Educational Resources and Tools and click on the box, The 2020 Panic, What's Next? Navigating Panics, Recessions, and Recoveries and then just enroll. Be well, be safe, and be financially careful. Take care. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director, Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.